the birth of Satyagraha. A sweet fruit is born of a sweet seed, yet sweetness in life can be born of something sour. This transformation is possible. If in nature only good seeds bear good fruit, how then in human beings can seeds of dominance, resentment, and anger become trees of love, truth, and peace? This is the key that Mahatma Gandhi and other peace messengers have brought to us. The transformation of bad seeds into good fruit grows from one's ability to suffer for others. The seeds of good take time in the dark to bring the fruit of life to light. The seeds of disharmony darken the mind. They are a corrosive element that bring decay, turmoil, and unhappiness. These disharmonious forces are made available to us for the purpose of transformation. Our awareness is the spade with which we tend to our garden. Only when we tend to our garden can trees grow, flowers bloom, and good seeds fructify. What is the process of tending to our inner world? What does it mean to engage in conscious awareness of oneself? How does one begin this process? How can we learn to bring light out of darkness? In looking into the past, we are able to see a path in which these obstacles can be overcome. Hi, I'm Sean, co-host, and today's episode is called Bad Seeds, Good Fruit. I'm Kenny, co-host of Windows. Windows on the world. Windows to the inner world. Windows to the inner world. You can leave your feedback below. So today's episode, we're going to uh, talk about a uh, someone who has affected my life deeply and impacts many of us in a, still today. And that is uh, the man known as Mahatma Gandhi. And in the episode today, we'll uh, share a little bit about... Uh, Gandhi's life and uh, those who influenced him in his uh, younger days and speak about his transformational experience uh, in South Africa that helped give birth to what's known as Satyagraha and we'll talk a little bit about what that is and then we'll explore um, how this transformation uh, occurs and really what are the forces uh, that are invisible that help make visible uh, these human transformations. And uh, it's it's Gandhi's transformation of his life that's always uh, drawn uh, my attention. And uh, it's been the reason I've continued to return to, to him to understand how he went uh, from who he was as a child and even as a young person uh, to someone who helped uh, bring freedom and liberation to so many people. And I was uh, reawakened to the teachings of Gandhi uh, almost six years ago when my firstborn daughter was born on October 2nd, 2016, which is uh, now celebrated as the International Day of Nonviolence. In India, it's celebrated as a national holiday, and it's the birth date of Gandhi, October 2nd, 1869. And he was born in Western India, uh, in the state of Gujarat, which borders the Arabian Sea, and uh, we'll approach it at another time. He he passed uh, on the 30th of January, 1948, in New Delhi, India. His, his father was the chief minister of, of the state and was someone who had many advantages, uh, even in a society that was ruled by colonial power. And his mother 
was someone who had a, a deep influence on his uh, life, in particular her, uh, her devotion. Uh, and one of the ways she expressed this devotion was through uh, fasting. Uh, many Hindus fast at a time uh, in relation to the moon, uh, a twice monthly fast uh, in relation to uh, the full and new moon. And this is called Ekadashi. And Gandhi grew up uh, with his mother as a uh, member of a, of a sect of Hinduism devoted to Krishna. And uh, this sect uh, took lessons from a number of religious sources. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which is kind of uh, a holy text of Hindus. Uh, the Quran, which is uh, studied and practiced as, uh, uh, in the Muslim faith. And the Bible. And so uh, Gandhi had an early example that he ended up living later in his life of uh, respect and integration of other faiths. Uh, and this became quite important near the end of his life when there was uh, interreligious violence happening at the partition of India where Muslims and Hindus who had previously lived uh, side by side uh, as neighbors and friends turned enemies. And Gandhi's mother would take uh, the most austere vows and keep them without a second thought, uh, performing many fasts and daily prayers and uh, attending the temple. And one of the stories that Gandhi shares in his autobiography is a memory that uh, one of the fasts that she performed was that she would not eat um, before she saw the sun that day. And in India, there's times of the year where there is uh, monsoon, and so many days of rain. And Gandhi recalled that uh, the children would watch the sky for the sun to shine through. And when they saw the, sh the sun shining through, they would go to their mother and say, come see the sun, knowing that she would not eat until this happened. And she would come out, and in the moment she comes out, the sun would disappear again before the clouds. And her response to this was to continue on with her fast. And this was a foundational memory that Gandhi carried throughout his life. And when he uh, later goes to London uh, to study as a lawyer, he makes a vow to his mother that he will continue to ad adhere by the religious principles that uh, he was raised with. And the other aspect of his childhood that he talks about in his, uh, in his writings is the great shyness that he experienced. He did not really have friends and he illustrates this by saying that uh, when the school day ended he would run home to avoid uh, having conversations or social interactions with his classmates. As a child Gandhi was uh, had uh, arrangement to be married uh, at the age of seven was the uh, when the kind of arrangement was made and he was uh, 14 when he became uh, a husband. And his uh, wife, Kastraba, uh was also a teenager. And they recall the wedding marriage being a time that they uh, were able to eat sweets. They really didn't know what was happening in many ways. And uh, as complicated a human as we all are, and that Gandhi in particular uh, was, uh, this uh, person who became known to the world as one who uh, would do so much for others uh, did not extend this to his wife, would often uh, attempt to impose his authority 
his his false sense of authority on his uh, on his wife. And one of the stories he tells regarding this uh, is that he would try to impose rules in which his wife had to follow. And uh, the way he described it was that she decided to to respond to this kind of violence in the home of uh, uh, one imposing on the other by uh, what he called a household version of civil disobedience. She would not participate in the work of the house. And then she would continue going on her own way, including leaving the house, which was one of the things that he uh, was imposing that uh, as the wife and mother, her uh, place was in the home. So these false notions he had were corrected even uh, in his household by his uh, very strong-willed, determined wife who uh, became a, a hero uh, and a freedom fighter in her, in her own right, really independent of the work of Gandhi. And when Gandhi would confront her about her so-called disobedience, uh, her response was that she was following the household guidance of Gandhi's own mother and that she was raised to respect the wishes of her elders. And so instead of adhering to these ideas that Gandhi had of, I'm the man, you should listen to me, she softly reminded him that this is your mother's house, and so I'm going to do as your mother is instructing us to do. And she invited Gandhi to go speak to his mother and get her to agree that she should follow these rules. And as Gandhi's grandson later wrote, and of course, Gandhi would not and could not do that. And at that moment, the the fights ended. And so this is why one of the many reasons Gandhi uh, describes his wife as his first teacher of nonviolence. And this devotion that Gandhi found in his mother, uh, he also found in his wife. And uh, this was not only a kind of devotion to the ideals in which they stood and what they were fighting for, but also uh, devotion to Gandhi, despite his flaws and his anger and his bitterness and his resentment that express itself in the home. And these kind of uh, dark seeds, these bad seeds within him manifested in his relation with his children, uh, who uh, many were left with those seeds of bitterness and never really were able to transform them. Uh, they, uh, One of his sons uh, later in life was someone who would uh, publicly walk around uh, drunk from alcohol, bad-mouthing his father, saying that this this man who is out in the public world in this way is no good at home. And so uh, it's not difficult uh, to see in Gandhi's life his bad seeds showing itself. And so again, the uh, kind of question is, how do these, what is the work to transform these seeds? And how are what examples can we learn from others who have uh, at least started doing this work of making good fruit from bad seeds? And so I mentioned uh, when Gandhi was 18, he left India to go to London to uh, study as a lawyer. And before he uh, left Mumbai, Bombay at the time, he was 18 years old. It was August 10th, 1888, as he prepared to set sail. And he uh, went to the local religious leaders to explain that he was going to London. And they warned him that if you go there, you will uh, 
lose your faith. You will lose your religious practices. And he told them that I've made this vow to my mother that I will continue to be essentially a good Hindu. And in my research for this, I, I learned this. He was, uh, despite this uh, vow he had taken to his mother, he was excommunicated from his caste. And so very early on, uh, Gandhi is finding himself as like a, a man with no land, a, 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 land with, a man with no country. And uh, indeed, he'll spend very little time in India for uh, almost 30 years from this time. And so he uh, travels to London, and at the age of 22, he uh, passes the bar, and he returns to India. And uh, as I understand the story, in one of his first cases, he stands before the judge, and those, uh, those seeds of shyness uh, that he had as a child, they show up again. And he is standing before the judge as a paid lawyer for his client, and he's unable to speak. He is so shy. And so he returns the money to the client, knowing that he's kind of no good to fulfill the task. And he's really kind of uh, discouraged and dejected. He has a family, and he is trained as a loyal lawyer, and he is unable to perform his duties. And so a family member uh, connects him to uh, an opportunity in South Africa, and uh Gandhi accepts this with the plan to travel there and live in South Africa for a year, his wife and children at home. And uh, this ends up being a stay of nearly 20 years where uh, much of the uh, organization and the tactics of social change and the uh, integration of uh, religious uh, practices of other faiths and uh, political negotiation, these kind of all over this period of 20s in South Africa uh, begin to, to fructify, begin to show. And uh, by the time Gandhi returns to India, he's uh, 45 years old, it's 1915, and he uh, has completely transformed himself even at this point. And that work of transformation uh, and kind of my reading of it remains incomplete at the end of his life. He was actively in this process of transforming bad seeds within himself um, to the end of his days. Thank you, Sean. Um, so when you brought this, um, this, this theme um, up at the earlier part of the week about how, how we see bad seeds in life and how the good comes from the bad um the light comes from the darkness um i know you know i gravitated to you know what can i bring to material can i can i read and i know one thing that i gravitated towards was a a memory or something i learned maybe about seven eight years ago when i was um kind of knee deep into making natural perfumery at home and also taking classes and just being around the natural perfumers that I came across this information about Indo and the most exotic flowers, um, the most ex sought after expensive flowers in the perfume world, such as tuberose, jasmine, um, orange blossom, which are, when I say expensive, um, 
a lot of beginning natural perfumers don't ever bother to work with those materials because we're talking about like $300 for, uh, you know, one gram, which would get you maybe 20 drops to work with and experiment with. So you only read about them. You never even smell them. You know, pure, on un, pure jasmine that diluted. And and I'm, I find out uh, around this time that these, the most sought after flowers, champakas and are the same flowers that have this this particular substance that's in this feast endo, and it's what makes them the most exotic flower. I, I grab I grabbed the article to kind of elaborate this scientific this, this natural world phenomenon, just to elaborate more in someone else's words better to explain. So I found this uh, article on on oh, a site called Cafleur Bone Indolent Perfumery Fecal Florals. What gives florals their seductive power? Let me introduce you to a compound called indole. Indole is, by definition, an aromatic heterocyclic compound which contains a six-membered benzene ring fused to a five-membered nitrogen-containing pyrrole ring. If that doesn't mean much to you, here's what you need to know. Smell. But perhaps poop isn't the best description for indole. In its pure, isolated form, endo is more like a musty, wet, yet also a penetrating, sharp, clean smell. A sort of odd combination of wet, dull, still hot breath and mothballs all rolled into one. Yes, this compound does contribute to the smell of But trace amounts are also found in white floral, jasmine, tuberose, neroli, orange blossoms, and gardenia. What really creates the signature aroma of the florals is really when high concentrations of indole are mixed with humidity and the surrounding decaying molecules found in poop. Here's the interesting. In trace amounts, the stench of pure indole actually mellows, losing the mustiness and becomes more more ambient. In perfume, natural oils that contain indole are often used to bring intrigue and as a seductive scent, providing an indescribable underlying animalic note that allures to the primal senses, similar in a way how pheromones work. When it comes to perfume, indole serves a purpose to do so. So basically, this author does, but another author puts it very, very uh, perfectly. It seems as if uh, at the bottom of what of what really attracts humans is some sort of dark, repulsive, indolent substance. Just something dark and repulsive that's that's contained within the beauty of something like a jasmine flower or grandiflorum. So you know, I've always kept that story in the back of my mind. I'm glad I had a chance to bring that fact to light because I've never tried to make sense of it when I heard of it. I just knew that that was something to share because it's definitely a paradox of, you know, the most fragrant, beautiful smelling perfumed flowers having fecal matter in there, basically, <laughs> you know? So that's definitely, uh, is, 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 a, is a, is a window onto the, just the paradox of a bad seed, good seed, and they're, they're together linked inextricably. I'm, I'm reminded I, I recently saw, um, believe it's outside the smithsonian museum there's a, a flower that blooms maybe once a year beautiful flower very big 
and it it smells like a dead corpse like this so mm. it, it, there is this this aspect and i've also kind of in hearing this reflecting in the human experience that uh, often when we are embarrassed or humiliated or come up short that feeling that we have uh, is can be described in this way you've described of these scents very viscerally but it is out of those experiences where some humility comes often where we actually learn something very deep about ourselves that uh, can lead to us changing our ways changing our behavior changing our uh, treatment to others actually i could imagine the distaste in gandhi's mouth when his uh, wife very quietly says i'm simply following your mother's directions and in that moment it's like He's, he's got a foul taste in his mouth and it feels like someone punched him in the stomach and he knows he's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, I saw a smooth, sweet picture on. She really handled that really well when I, I read that, what she wrote. It's like and she walked out and did her thing. So, yeah, I guess she carried the sweetness part with her. <laughs> what, one of the things, reasons I love learning about history and the experiences people have in uh, different times and places is to hear the kind of parallel experiences that happen elsewhere. And so uh, we're, m- many of us are familiar with the story of Rosa Parks and her refusal to um, get up that day from the bus. And Dr. King had an experience uh, when he was younger, being forced to get up and being with his father actually and seeing how uh, insulted and hurt his father was at the the disrespect of needing to to move under these conditions and so we, we, we returned to Gandhi there in South Africa it's, it's June 7 1893 he's 23 years old he's away from home for the second time and the stakes have kind of he's no longer a student he's no longer training he uh, needs to begin to uh, manifest something in his life and uh, on this night in South Africa Gandhi was riding a train from Durban to Pretoria, and he had a first-class ticket, and he's uh, a lawyer and understands his, uh, actually, at this time, Gandhi saw himself more as a, like, a member of the British Empire than even as an Indian. This concept of, of kind of national identity uh, really forms while Gandhi's in South Africa for the Indian people, and so he is uh this is why he supports the uh, British during World War One. He participates as a as a medic, but he's supporting the war effort um, because even at this late date, uh, just before he returns to India, he's still in this kind of colonial construct of his own identity. And so he's on this train, and uh, if you've seen the the movie of of Gandhi, there's a scene of this, and he's harassed by a white passenger, and he is. Uh, told by the uh, you know station master, the the employee of the train station, you must move to third class, and uh, he refuses. And uh, he does not remain in his seat though, and he's thrown off the train. And he spends his uh, night in the in the cold, and his he's, he does not have his belongings. He doesn't have his coat. He's uh, felt insulted enough and does not want to go beg for his things that were also taken off the train and are, are at the station. And so we can picture him in this moment 
over the course of this, this night, which he later recounts as the most creative experience of his life, was uh, sitting with the pain and the insult of uh, uh, being really dismissed in this way, and that something he knew he had a right to, just for very clearly because of uh, what he looked like and the color of his skin, uh, he loses that in the moment. And this is the moment of uh, trans transformation, of transmission, where he comes to the insight that he will uh, fight the evil that resulted in this, but he would not uh, hate the people who were performing this evil. And as he puts it in, a, in an interview, the hardship to which I was subjected was superficial, only a symptom of the deep disease of color prejudice. I should try, if possible, to root out the disease and suffer hardships in the process. Redress for wrongs I should seek only to the extent that would be necessary for the removal of the color prejudice. My active nonviolence began from that date. And uh, what later becomes born out of this experience it, uh, is another... 13 years before this insight actually manifests in a real way. He continues in South Africa to face discrimination. He is told by a magistrate he must remove his turban in the court. He is uh, you know, thrown off of uh, carriages. And so he lives with this insult while he's there in South Africa. And his planned one-year stay extends because he sees there's work for him to do here. This, what he ends up calling, actually, I believe his, like, a nephew ends up giving this word of Satyagraha. And he, he actually kind of opened up a, like, a contest. He had come up with this idea of what we think of as uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. But he never was happy with the negative kind of language around what, to him, as it just said, my active nonviolence. For him, this is really very much a way to be in the world. And uh, Satyagraha uh, doesn't translate directly, but we can understand it as Satya being truth and this Agraha, some sense of insistence on, wholly firming to, firmness in, or in the kind of one of the children books that recounts these stories, uh, simply truth force. And so, uh, this is his idea, and this idea is based on a uh, on a philosophical one, and that uh, Satyagraha becomes the visible, it becomes the fruit that has actually permeated now the entire world many times over in anywhere where, like uh, we learned of Gandhi's wife, even in not in the public eye, whenever uh, there is this active force of resistance. With love, the Gandhi's wife did not yell and scream and did not uh, abandon, but saw the wrong behavior, saw the bad seed trying to grow and refused to water it. And the invisible force of this is ahimsa. And ahimsa is, is do no wrong. And at the way Gandhi describes this relationship of ahimsa and satyagraha of truth, Without ahimsa, it is not possible to seek and find truth. Ahimsa and truth are so intertwined that it is practically impossible to disentangle and separate them. They are like the two sides of a coin, or rather, 
of a smooth, unstamped metallic disc. Nevertheless, ahimsa is the means, truth is the end. Means to be means must always be within our reach. And so ahimsa is our supreme duty. The next, the next I want to align with ahimsa and satyagraha. It's a, it's a reading from the Kabbalion. Um, the Kabbalion is a book uh, written kind of anonymously, but it, they say it's written by the three initiates. It's a book of hermetic tradition, and it's a book published in 1908. When it was written, no one knows, at least published in 1908. So I chose the uh, chapter on polarity. The Kabbalion basically sets out seven basic hermetic prints in polar- polarity. Everything is dual. Everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposite. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half-truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. The great fourth hermetic principle, the principle of polarity, embodies the truth that all manifested things have two sides, two aspects, two poles, a pair of opposites, with many fold degrees between the two extremes. The old paradoxes which have ever perplexed the mind of men are explained by understanding of this principle. Man has always recognized something akin to this principle and has endeavored to express it by such sayings, maxims, and aphorisms as the follow. Everything is and isn't at the same time. All truths are but half-truths. Every truth is half-false. There are two sides to everything. There is a reverse side to every shield, etc., etc. The hermetic teachings are to the effect that the difference between things seemingly diametrically opposed to each other is merely a matter of degree. It teaches that the pairs of opposites may be reconciled and that the thesis and antithesis are identical in nature but different in degree and that the universal reconciliation of opposites is affected by recognition of this principle of polarity. The teachers claim that illustrations of this principle may be had on every hand, and from an examination into the real nature of anything, they begin by showing that spirit and matter are but the two poles of the same thing, the intermediate planes being merely degrees of vibration. They show that the all and the many are the same, the difference being merely a matter of degree of mental manifestation. Thus, the law and laws are the two opposite poles of one thing. Likewise, principle and principles, infinite mind and finite mind. Then passing on to the physical plane, they illustrate the principle by showing that heat and cold are identical and the differences being merely a matter of degrees. The thermometer shows many degrees of temperature, the lowest pole being called cold and the highest heat. Between these two poles are many degrees of heat or cold. Call them either and you are equally correct. The higher of two degrees is always warmer, while the lower is always colder. There is no absolute standard. All is a matter of degree. There is no place on the thermometer where heat ceases and cold begins. It is all a matter of higher or lower vibration. The very terms high and low, which we are compelled to use, are but poles of the same thing. The terms are relative. So with east and west. Travel around the world in an eastward direction, 
and you reach a point which is called rest at your starting point and you return from that westward point travel far enough north and you will find yourself traveling south or vice versa light and darkness are opposed to the same thing with many degrees between them the musical scale is the same starting with c you move upward until you reach another c and so on the differences between the two ends of the board being the same with many degrees between the two to two extremes the scale of color is the same higher and lower vibrations being the only difference between high violet and low red large and small are relative so are noise and quiet hard and soft follow the rule likewise sharp and dull positive and negative are two poles of the same thing with countless degrees between them good and bad are not absolute we call one end of the scale good and the other bad or on one end good and other evil according to the use of the terms a thing is less good than the thing higher in the scale but that less good thing in turn is more good than the thing next and so on the more or less being regulated by the position of the scale. An old English poem, um, it's by an anonymous writer. It's called The Wife's Lament. I make this song of myself deeply sorrowing. My own life journey, I'm able to tell all the hardships I've suffered since I grew up. But new or old, never worse than now. Ever I suffer the torment of my exile. First my Lord left his people for the tumbling waves. I worried at dawn where on earth my leader of men might be. When I set out myself in my sorrow, a friendless exile, to find his retainers, that man's kinsmen began to think in secret that they would separate us. So we would live far apart in the world. Most miserably and longing seized me. My Lord commanded me to live with him here. I had a few loved ones or loyal friends in this country, which causes me grief. Then I found that my most fitting man was unfortunate, filled with grief, concealing his mind, plotting murder with a smiling face. So often we swore that only death could ever divide us, nothing else. All that is changed now. It is now as if we had never been. Our friendship, far and near, I must endure the hatred of my dearest one. They forced me to live in a forest grove, under an oak tree in an earthen cave. This earth hall is old, and I ache with longing. The dales are dark, the hills too high. Harsh hedges overhung with briars, a home without joy. Here my Lord's leaving often fiercely sees me. There are friends on earth, lovers leaving who lie in their bed. While I walk alone in the light of dawn, under the oak tree and through this earth cave, where I must sit this summer long day, there I can weep for all my exiles, my many troubles, and so I may never escape from the cares of my sorrowful mind nor all the longings that have seized my life. May the young man be sad-minded with heart, hard heart's thoughts, yet let him have a smiling face along with his heartache, a crowd of constant sorrows. Let to himself all his worldly joys belong. Let him be outlawed in a far distant land, so that my friend sits under stone cliffs chilled by storms, weary-minded, 
surrounded by water in a sad, dreary hall. My beloved will suffer the cares of a sorrowful mind. He will remember too often a happier home. Woe to the one who must suffer longing for a loved one. I also like to read a, a very short poem by a Japanese poet of the 12th century, Sagyo Hoshi, an untitled poem. This leaky, tumble-down grass hut left an opening for the moon, and I gazed at it. All the while it was mirrored in a teardrop falling on my sleeve. This next poem in the book called Psychoton, or titled The Vegetable Root Discourses, written by Hong Si Ching. Even cloudless days and clear weather may change, may quickly change to sudden thunderclaps and shuddering streaks of lightning. Even violent squalls and angry rains may quickly change to a bright moon and a cloudless sky. What consistency has nature's movement? A stagnation as slender as an autumn hair? What consistency has the cosmic beginning? A hindrance as slender as a hair in the fall? The carriage of man's mind should also be like this. Now my last piece I want to read is uh, it's an interview um, with Stephen Levine, who is an American poet, author, and teacher um, who was known doing for his career of working with the dying. He gave a really good story of uh, what one may gain out of the dying experience. When you say, when you ask me what is healing, I still don't know. When him and his, when, when my, my wife and I were directing the Hanuman Foundation Dying Project, we worked for a long time predominantly with people who had come to ask us to help them die. And a lot of the people we worked with came to a certain point in their process, usually including opening up to the reality that death might well be in the near future. So they began to finish their business. Our relations are usually run like businesses. I'll give you two, you'll give me two. If you give me one, I'm going to take my bat and my ball and go home. And I won't play anymore. So this is kind of totaling up of accounts that's always going on with people. And a lot, it's, it's real easy to think that finishing business is you forgive me. I forgive you, but I'm not going to forgive me if until you forgive me. Maybe there's always waiting for the someone else to give you something. We started to see that many people started to see that the end of business was no longer relationships as business. When I take you into my heart, our business is done. If you don't take me into your heart, that's your pain and I feel that but it really doesn't affect my business. And we started to see people heal their relationships towards the end of their lives, where they were really meeting other people with such mercy and such care for their well-being that even those who were angry. As an example, a really extreme example, a woman we know had worked with her mother, had been very ill. She never really gotten along with her mother. The mother had been very judgmental, quite unkind, abusive, and her mother then became very ill. And she was the only one of the sisters who would even go sit bedside. They all had such a 
contention. They felt so judged by the mother that they really put their mother out of their heart. She decided she was a Zen student. She decided that her work on herself was to be there for her mom. She sat next to her mom and her mom would go into light sleep and come out and in and out as people do. And she would just sit next to her mother and wish her well. Now, why haven't you given me this? Why didn't you do that for me? Not trying to total accounts, but trying to let her let her mother as is into her heart. I mean, that's the basis of relationship as is. Because if I want you to be the least different, then you become an object in my mind instead of the subject of my heart. That's where the healing is. The other areas just separate. Her mother had been very nasty in her lifetime. It wasn't ending just because she was dying. This woman, day after day, sending loving kindness to her mother. On the day that her mother died, her mother looked up at her and said, I hope you roast in hell. I hope that you have the worst possible life ever. Her mother died cursing, and she died with her daughter sitting next to her, looking at her with soft eyes and with an open heart. Well, I hope everything's okay for you. Now, for her mom, it was terrible, but for her, it was wonderful. She had really finished her business. She was just with another human being who was having a hard time. I mean, that's really extreme and hopefully we can all get some glimpse of what that would be like. But that's enormous healing. The woman who was dying died. The woman who was sitting next to her was healing. Who was she healing? Herself. Herself. That's all we can heal. If we're not working on our own healing, you certainly can't be contributing to anyone else's healing. One of the reasons we need video running so you can see my eyes bugging out when you <laughs> share that. Exactly, exactly. It's a shark. <laughs> uh, we're finding the polarity in uh, my attempt to render some uh, his- history with accurate dates and uh, locations, and you are bringing... Uh, undated, anonymous, and untitled poetry. So, <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> I did a nice flow. And, and those, those poems actually bring a kind of a, a edit as we move into uh, this idea, uh, working concept of inner aurora light, of how can we take these uh, poems, these words, these teachings, these examples of people uh, with their bad seeds and bringing some of those bad seeds and transforming them and some of those bad seeds remaining until another incarnation, however this comes, and really um, this great transformation that is death. And uh, so we share a little bit um, of reflections on what what what, ha- what happened when Gandhi had this experience, what was his transformation, and then uh, spend some time exploring uh, what it was kind of the universal uh, transformation, like what can we take from it in our own lives or as we we walk through the world. And, you know, in the immediate, uh, Gandhi, something, something shifted inside Gandhi and mainly this shyness kind of vanishes. And it's not replaced with necessarily like a boisterous, like now I'm the center of attention, but 
what I think of like as uh, ceaseless effort and passion towards the redress of the injustice, uh, but um, with a limited scope. I think by for many people known uh, that Gandhi did not uh, organize efforts for black African South Africa. His work was really focused on the uh, the the many Indians who were suffering injustice, but at the end of the day, not really like the the native Africans who were uh, in the process of uh, being disenfranchised of their land and their culture on a whole. Uh, but this uh, spirit grows inside Gandhi, and uh, many things come out of this time in his life. He uh, trains as an organizer, works as an organizer. He opens a school. He creates... Uh, starts a newspaper, creates a functioning farm and factory, and many of his ideas that he'll apply in India, uh, especially around economic sufficiency, are born in the kind of crucible of this time. The story that you share, Kenny, of death, uh, kind of leads me to remember uh, one of the things we'll be exploring throughout uh, the, the podcast is... Uh, our ancestors and what our relationship to ancestors. I consider uh, Gandhi an ancestor of mine as a, in my cultural lineage, not necessarily my blood family line, but as I shared, uh, maybe as my daughter was born on his birthday, maybe there is a seed that has uh, traveled in my own life uh, kind of back to itself. Uh, and maybe there's some of those uh, seeds that are waiting to be transformed in me that have are with my children. Um, and 10 days before uh, Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated, uh, he, he shared this message. If I fall victim to an assassin's bullet, there must be no anger from within me. God must be in my heart and on my lips. And the, the story and the eyewitness accounts of this experience uh, experience as you share this experience Gandhi had of receiving this bullet is that he said oh Ram which is the name of God there uh, Rama is one way to invoke the divine in India and that indeed uh, God's name was on his lips and I speak of my ancestors because uh, we'll, we'll drop it in the show notes for real uh, I uh, probably about maybe three years ago four years ago I learned that uh uh, my great uncle, who I have met a few times, he lives in India. He was my my grand, my maternal grandfather's younger brother, so my mother's father's younger brother, and he was fourteen years younger than my grandfather. And in uh, during the freedom struggle, he was a young man. He was in his uh, he was in his twenties. He's still alive. He lives in India. He's in his nineties now, and. Um, he worked for uh, All India Radio at the time, and he was like an audio tech. And he, his responsibility in 1948 was to record uh, audio of the Gandhi's daily prayer. And this was the one of the major mobilizing uh, forces that Gandhi utilized was these daily prayer meetings, where he would essentially spread propaganda for liberation of the Indian people. Like, that was his means of propaganda against the British. And my great-uncle uh, was there recording, preparing to record the prayer meeting of January 30, 
1948. And as Gandhi was walking to the place on stage, so to speak, that he was going to give his prayer, he was assassinated. And my great uncle, still living today, is the last living witness to Gandhi's assassination. assassination. He yes, he was there. And there's a, well, as I mentioned, we'll include a video that in India, they made a little video interviewing him a few years ago, uh, sharing this experience. And I think they made the video when some other folks who were also witness had passed away because and all, all of this history now is becoming, uh, we, we try to preserve it in some way because those who lived through it are slowly moving on to their next experience. No, he was in his, um, he was like in his 20s. He was like a young professional kind of thing. He, he worked as it was like, I'd, I'd have to verify, but I, my, it was like kind of like an entry level kind of work of making sure the sound was connected to the mic to, to record. And he didn't work long for All India Radio. And um, unfortunately, last time I saw him, it was well over a decade ago. It might have been 20 years ago. Um, so it's, it's, a, a, it's something I learned about somewhat recently and quite an amazing thing to realize that someone in your family was there. So I, I mentioned this idea of transmission that uh, kind of the idea is that all of us go through and some of us in a major way uh, kind of trans tr transformations in our life. And we all go through transformations in our life. We gr if you're if you grow up, you change from a baby to a toddler to a child like this. But what we're really uh, exploring is not the external transformation, but the inner transformation. And the idea and the evidence, really, based on those who have lived before, of uh, these moments where something gets transmitted. So that's why we share the story of Gandhi sitting there in the cold, uh, in the insult of that experience and coming to this this insight that is not his alone it's an insight that uh, many of the other people that we learn about in history books also have and so one of the things that i kind of in my reflection of what's the universal transformation aspect like what what does this story of gandhi tell us about uh, our own experiences of transformation is well so one is that he had to make this choice of if he was going to continue to pass along this insult. And if in that moment he said, I, I hate all white people. They, a white person kicked me off his train. And so I'm going to use the rest of my life force to uh, give back the pain. And as evidenced by his life, he was, uh, he wanted the British to leave India, but he was fine being friends with them, even though they continued to insult him and the Indian people f until they, even after, even after they left. But the, um, the other aspect that I, I think that you have, you have something to share regarding, maybe it's why it kind of came for you. The experience of transformation took place in darkness. Is it like every year? It's literally a cold, dark night. Uh, and it's 1893, uh, probably we can imagine there's not lights in the train. Station. It's not, it's not, you're not sitting in a train station and, uh, that's probably very, it's a lonely, it's a lonely place. He's sitting there and it was in this darkness. He touched some, some light and out of this, something new came. And so I definitely see this kind of, uh, 
reality that uh, what Joseph Campbell called, you know, in his in his hero's journey is his mythology kind of analysis of the dark night of the soul of this time in our life where we kind of come to our wit's end of like almost like we come to a place of, well, this isn't really just my life for me. And now I'm in a bit of a paradox because words of the poem and to one of the readings you gave of that, you can't heal help others heal if you don't heal yourself and yet if you take this idea of heal yourself to a extreme you 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 kind of get stuck in place in some way Uh, so even that notion at some point needs to get transformed because at some point you have to decide that you're healed enough to to engage with the world in a way where you're bringing light and not perpetuating more hurt and pain the this other and then we have to hear of the dream perhaps and and some more something else came to me <laughs> from all these readings. Talking about dreams, John, I, I had this reflection that uh, this year at the anniversary of the March on Washington when Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech, uh, for a long time, this is like almost be, has become the memory of, of Dr. King. And I, this was the first year that I don't remember anyone saying anything about it. I mean, I don't. I didn't, wasn't really watching the news, listening to the news that day. But um, among you know, get uh, messages about things that happened, the state in history. Not like it wasn't present, but it's almost like we're even losing that part of Dr. King's message, and that's really scary because uh, before it was like, well, let's hear the message of "I Have a Dream," and but let's also hear the message of. We got. We're coming with a, to to cash a bad check. You said that in the same speech. But then the other aspect is, well, that was 1963. He he said other things for the next five years, and so let's not forget that. And it it almost maybe it's in this environment of critical race theory and all the uh, this attempt to censor that it 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 all it was a kind of a scary kind of realization that. Uh, Maybe we're even losing the uh, sanitized version, you know, the cleaned up version. And it makes me wonder, like, what will remain if we if, if we start even losing the acceptable history? So that's a little bit of a sidebar, but it's something that as we're talking about these dreams. So I read uh, one more thing regarding Gandhi and this idea of redemptive suffering, which I think we'll return to because it's something that. It's one of the key ideas that Dr. King draws from, from, from Gandhi's insight of Satyagraha. And so Gandhi writes, Suffering is the mark of the human tribe. It is an eternal law. The mother suffers so that her child may live. Life comes out of death. No country ever risen without being purified through the fire of suffering. It is impossible to do away with the law of suffering, which is the one indispensable condition of our being. Progress is to be measured by the amount of suffering undergone. The purer the suffering, the greater the progress. The conviction has been growing upon me that things of fundamental importance to the people are not secured by reason alone, but have to be purchased with their suffering. Suffering is infinitely more powerful than the law of the jungle for converting the opponent and opening his or her ears, which are otherwise shut to the voice of reason. Nobody has probably drawn up more petitions or espoused more forlorn causes than I, 
And I have come to this fundamental conclusion that if you really, if you want something really important to be done, you must not merely satisfy the reason, you must move the heart also. The appeal of reason is more to the head, but the penetration of the heart comes from suffering. It opens up the inner understanding in humanity. Suffering is the badge of the human race, not the sword. That, that really opens kind of read more into um, this theme of redemptive suffering, because I really got it there when <clears throat> the distinction was made that you don't want the chains purely in the head and, and the thought change. You want the heart change. And if the person's there is suffering and needs to get the message across to, uh, say, the oppressors or the audience watching the suffering, that suffering heart needs to be at the center of the space for everyone to kind of pick up while the change happens to go from suffering to liberation. It's almost like the, the one who suffers holds the, uh, the key to change at that moment, you know, and everyone around them has to kind of feel that. So uh, the uh, shit like in the inner directly related to uh, the words bad seed and good seed. I think this memory came up from that once you're down. And it was, uh, it also reminded me of our Gandhi part of the story. He was kicked off the train and just kind of outcast all at the station. So in eighth grade, I was ostracized, an entire class. In eighth grade, it was also the year I learned the word ostracized. <laughs> um, so that happened. We're talking a class, maybe 25 members of Catholic school, the same 25 kids I've known since kindergarten. So I was ostracized for my last eight years, basically. Wait, wait, you were ostracized? Up to eighth grade? Oh no, not that bad. That would have been horrible. Like I don't think I would grade. be here if that. <laughs> I, don't, I think me. I would be somewhere a bit, somewhere with someone so watching over me. Your eighth grade year. Yeah, my eighth okay. grade okay. year. Uh, what happened was uh, one school morning, we yard before the school bell rang for school even started. I found myself in a circle. All the girls in the class, all the guys in the class, are circling me. My best friend with my arm behind my back holding them. My so-called, well, my best friend up until that morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with my second best friend in front of me, ready to punch me in the face. And then with an acquaintance, not a good friend, in the background said, yeah, hit him. And all the girls and all the guys just looking at me. Now, I didn't get hit. Let's start, let's just wipe that part out. But uh, what I did get, I won't call them accusations because they were all true. <laughs> yeah, he said this about you. He made this joke about you. Basically, um, I was the kind of kid, the power of and speak, powers make jokes. And, and I, I said a lot of jokes that were in presence of the person. And so uh, what happened was I was called. It was amplified a little bit by a person who just did not like me, this, this new kid in the class. And so skip to from the schoolyard that morning remaining, let's say, for three months. Three months. I went from basically being a very popular kid in that class to, I think there was one kid. I was, two kids. There were two kids who were willing to. Two kids that I've never had lunch with before. I would have never sat with them because they were so quiet. They were like, I was in that group now. <laughs> and uh and lunch is inside the classroom it's not in the cafe it's no big difference you still feel this horrible pressure of talking every class in math when we set your chairs and you sit in the next no one is talking to no one's having chit chat with me no one's having jokes with me no one's even looking and then that's when the who was it it was funny she was she was she was not a fan of mine 
I was not a fan of her. She was one of the three people who talked to me. <laughs> her and the two kid kids. And she told me. She told me. You know what this is, Kenny? This is called ostracization. That's when I learned such a big word in eighth grade. And I mean, the moment she said it and explained the definition, I didn't need to look in a dictionary. I it was I was a picture of perfect for that that term. So so you know, at least three months went past, and but it was three months where I, I didn't gain an ulcer. I thought I gained. I did gain a verge. I became lactose intolerant. Every Monday morning, fathers during that three month time from stomach i thought it was it was more lactose intolerant i'm sure it has something to do yeah. just the stress so you know that story rarely pops frosts up it was very tickles around mm. telling yeah i'm the kind of person that no one liked for three months you know you don't really walk around first came up to go to and the the when i brought it up i brought it up the total feeling about that because it was such a low worry i wasn't and i forgotten it i said ah oh, i think that's why I'm such individual. I love being by myself. I love traveling by myself. I'm, I, one or two friends is good enough for me. I think it has something to do with that. But by the time I it was something, I, I mean, it really firmed me. Well, I don't really have to have it. I'm fine. And I say, you know what? It must have something. Wow, it was a ghost. It was a ghost town. I, I'd, be, I'd be fascinated to um, speak with your teacher from that year and uh, hear any recollection she has of how you were different after that like mm. crucible experience mm. that says i'm hearing this it'd be so interesting to to uh, to, to get a perspective and maybe it's actually something you can access yourself if it came in a meditation or maybe it'll come through a dream where it's like uh, to, to, for you to see that there is that there was some good that came out of it for yourself your ability to walk in the world and uh, in a kind of individual way and not be bothered by that, but like for to be able to see what kind of transformation took place, you're recognizing the transformation as yourself now. And what was the transformation in that? Like over that period, it was already starting. Yeah. It's just that yeah. I, I have to, I we'll, we'll save them so we don't get into too much confession here. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go to Catholic school, but I, I, I had some experiences of, of this kind of feeling of ostracization and I don't and I don't recall it being the threat of physical violence like you're describing, but now it makes me wonder if I blocked it out. Mm. <laughs> if maybe I did have some maybe because I definitely had experience of like loneliness or uh, but I, my sense is more it was self-imposed. It wasn't because I was making fun of people on their backs like you were. I mean, it sounds like you deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> this week's um, lessons of Gandhi definitely brought that to mind. What can come out of a bad seed? I, I stay firm with my um, <clears throat> observation that that really firmed me up as a person who can mm. stand the moment. And as you talk about, like, there must have been other things. This is the first thought time i've had this but it must be have something with my knee-jerk reaction to empathize with us because mm. i mean the subtlety that's what came, that's what i thought you were going to say actually was more in that sense so but now now i have this image that uh, perhaps a good seed brings a good fruit and perhaps a bad seed can be transformed into many good fruit that that these like we say gandhi out of this he starts a newspaper. Mm. He starts a school. This concept of satyagraha, which has uh, is a fruit that continues to uh, bring more fruit, and has from Gandhi to Dr. King to 
spread throughout the world in a very real way. And it's a, as we, we sit here and explore this uh, concept of bad seed, many good fruits, maybe we've had an updated episode time. Because it really does seem that from these experiences, it's that we can name the experience of like a crucible experience of when yeah. we felt. But now we can actually see that it's not just you feeling okay being as a person in the world and being uh, okay alone going explore the world on your own, but also this compassion, care of like being able to recognize someone like this. There are many hidden things that's prima, as they say, not prima, not just uh, feces. It was also turmoil on the psychology. They say it was turmoil. That's just what you wanted to start off with. And there's something. Let me, I want to lead into that. I had this at the top of my mind. It also example of good sprouting very, very dark. And I don't normally have dark, uh, 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 ominous, sort of cloudy feeling dreams. They're more mostly bright or just unexplainable. But this dream definitely had a moody, moody undertone. So it was a two-part dream. Um, they're connected. The opening scene, or the first scene of the dream is, um, it's, it's, it's dark and cloudy, evening time. And, and you just get the sense something is about to take off and leave. And I'm standing on a curb. You feel like, my, it feels like behind me is a, is some sort of transportation hub or the or the or the or the, or the uh, a shipyard port is behind me and a friend is is uh, near me a friend that I don't have in my life right now a very he was my best friend but we haven't seen each other in a while and, but but he's there and the feeling and awareness is oh this friend is here I'm I'm connecting with this friend again and um. And and there's a there's a there's a woman also on the curb and that they don't know each other, but some sort of subtle communication is going on. That's another part of the story. Um, and just to give a backdrop to this friend, this friend is, uh, I would call just a total outsider of conventional society uh inside and out meaning um on the outside he hasn't been connected with a corporate job or any work period decades um he went through a period of once he kind of got detached from corporate working in the corporate world or any jobs he went to a period of uh, just a very sort of vagabond lifestyle, traveling the country, um, somehow getting involved in marrying a woman who, a young woman who was a part of a, 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 a West Coast gang member <laughs> group, and, and then getting out of that phase of life to somehow and come into a huge, not inheritance, but he, he received a lot of money from a situation. And just traveled the country more and went, spent the money and then became homeless. Um, and so that's the external part of him being outside. And the internal part, I mean, from my, since that time I've known him, he's been a reader of uh, French, um, just existential philosophy, Camus, Sartre. So he's never been connected. And um, But interesting, his father is an MIT uh, astrophysics professor, worked at NASA. So he's just an interesting character in general. And so that's scene number one. So that he kind of sets the mood, too, because he's a very sort of undertone kind of guy. <laughs> the next scene is just, you know, it's inside, like underground, like a dome area, a big dome. And there's people, I'm looking at people going down a long, long 
uh, rows of escalators, almost uh, similar to the long escalators you see at the metro centers in, in this city. And then the, the scene goes further down into the dome underground, and we're all like just a mass of people. And it feels like almost of uh, uh, the people there are sort of mindless uh, mall goers mentality you feel in the crowd. It's just people here going here, bustling there, chitting, chatting. But I'm aware there's an ominous tone. Like we're all being, they're there. I don't have a sense of we. They're all being gathered, you know, amassed together. Someone's controlling something and about to introduce something to them. And in my mind, it's I'm safe because, oh, my derelict or, or outsider friend is outside and he has some friends with him and I'm going with them. But I'm just down here and I'm thinking to myself, don't get distracted while you're with this massive, mindless, small goer type mentality being amassed together in this dome. Don't get distracted too much because you have to go meet up them so you can leave because there's this feeling that the doors are going to be closed on this dome environment eventually. And uh, as I'm in the dome more, uh, I get the feeling I'm like talking to people. I'm getting distracted a little bit. And then you start to see the people who are controlling it. You see white coats, white medical coats walking around three or four or five or six, but they're popping out more and more. And there is no audio in this dream, but you just see and sense chatter chatter with the mindless um, um, all the over crowd. And then the feeling happens. It's a feeling. I never saw it, but the feeling is the doors just shut. Wherever the doors were leading at the beginning of the escalator area of this dome, they're shut. And now the white coats, they're talking because they're announcing what the program is. There's a program. And... Uh, that's when I get the realization, the fear snapping moment of, oh my God, I've, I missed my time frame to exit this place. I knew better. I know what's going on here. I didn't leave. Oh my God, I'm stuck here in the dome. And the next scene is I'm in uh, this small glass room that's within the dome and all the Margo is out there and now the white coats are kind of taking over, announcing to, to everyone what's going on. And... There's a fear in my chest because I'm face to face with like someone's in my face telling me the, about to tell me the program, what I must do. And there's fear. And then it's almost as if the dream is about to fade out and like just fade off into no more dream. Maybe I'll just go to sleep. And then a switch happens, a transformation. I'm aware again I'm in the dream. I'm aware again I'm in a small glass room and everyone's around and someone's about to instruct me on what I must do, a white coat. And at that moment, something inside me changed. Whereas I don't say anything. This is not in this audio dream has no audio. But the thought is, you know what? If I'm here, then and then I'm going to react. I'm going to speak and speak and speak until I blow their ears out with whatever I have to tell them. And the moment that thought pops up, the light in the dream amplifies like it goes from ominous to kind of full color, the color of the white, uh, white lab coat person from me, his face gets amplified the, the environment gets amplified just because i changed and and the feeling was almost if i was a rebel who was just about well i'm here i'm just gonna react until the you know i can't react no more i'm gonna give him the best of me face and uh i woke up and it felt good i mean when i i didn't i didn't wake up immediately but when i woke up that morning I, that was that was the last piece and I mean, the, in, the integration, what that meant immediately with the bed. Yeah, I'm going to use my voice. 
and I'm going to get into the ears of who's in front of me whenever, wherever. I mean, that's 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 my goal. And uh, because the dream was so ominous, it didn't take time to link up with the, the the statement you made in life one may have to be you know removed for what the words they need to get out of their mouth but it was the confidence of this is what i want to do i want to always get exactly what i need to say and regardless of what's going to happen to bodily outcome or anything like and it was a, it was a, it felt good because that was the ominous in the beginning the very end it turned good it turned a different tone i've been feeling confident from that dream since and it has keyed into an actual uh, event or phenomenon that popped up the next day in my life. The third insight I want to share um, of, of how um, what we've been discussing um, kind of is popping up in my own life is, uh, is uh, the fact that I have a new neighbor below me that I, I'm aware, I became aware of as of uh, uh, last night. Last night. Last night around 10 minutes before 10 p.m. or or, or 30 minutes before 10 p.m., there's just like loud music. I'm like, oh gosh, what is going on? No one plays loud music. What is this? And then that's when I realized, oh, David's not downstairs anymore. He left out about a couple months ago. And, you know, we must have a new replacement, a new neighbor. I said, well, okay, it's not 10 o'clock yet. So I'll just wait till it's like three minutes after 10. I have to knock on the door and kindly ask him, you know, we don't normally play anything loud past 10. And, uh, you know, I already got thoughts in my head because it's very non-melodic music. <laughs> it's like computer bang, bang, bass. So I go downstairs, I'm knocking and he, he doesn't open up immediately. So I'm really like, oh gosh, by the time he comes to the door i don't know what state he's going to be in because i was knocking for 10 12 minutes i was not going to leave i knocked in different patterns i knocked in different rhythms and i don't normally do this so you know because i don't normally do this i have so many uh assumptions in my head all oh, this guy's gonna be violent acting that's you know these are all my assumptions i mean me having met this guy the door opens and he swaggers really slowly and confidently, like he's being bothered a little bit. He's a very chill guy. I actually made sure to just back away from that door <laughs> by the time he opened it so I wouldn't be too close. And when he opens it, I, hello, you know, whatever. And I think I must have said it probably like the second sentence in. You're not angry, are you? I'm so like, just so, you know, presumptuous in my own mind. He says, no, I'm not angry. He talks very calm. And then I was just explained to him, you know, simply that, you know, typically we don't play music past and then I, you know, I can hear your music straight going up to my, you know, I myself play guitar. I'm always, you know, I, 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 I make sounds. I'm always worried about other people. So, I, you know, and I was told him, you know, the person before you, David, he played his piano. So we all make sounds of our apartments, but we all kind of stop it. He's very, what you call, easygoing. You know, non-threatening. Oh, I understand. Sorry. You know, I just got home. I just got home. I was just relaxed. So that was that. The music stops. But at 12 o'clock, another noise starts to come from his apartment. And it's it's bizarre to me because it's just vocal noise. And it's it comes in scattered patterns every 10 minutes. And to me, it sounded like just a F-U-C-K blurted out of nowhere. And a scream here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy, what is going on? This guy, he's not right. <laughs> I'm already, again, I'm presuming, because I can't hear distinctly 
anything, but it sounded like just screaming. I'm thinking how I'm going to approach him. I'm already already thinking of saying to him, uh, I have, you know, when he opens his door, I'm thinking of saying, you know, I have meditative practice. Are you doing anything? <laughs> are you, a, is there an issue? Do you have a problem? So I'm thinking all these things I'm assuming again. Anyway, I go down there at 12 at midnight, knock on the door. He doesn't. Answer. No, I don't knock on the door. I wait till he makes the sounds, but I don't hear him. And I wait like I literally get in the hallway. I'm tired, kind of sleepy. So I lay on the floor. I'm like, you know, I was in the uh, lotus position for a minute, but then I got tired. I laid on my back. But like 30 minutes went by. He didn't make the sound. So, okay, I go back up. This dream, the dream before it got me firm to where I want to. I'm not going to. No, I want to approach. And so I go back to my part. I said, maybe it's over. And 30 minutes go past the 12th. It's not over. It comes again. We're talking about even later, not 12th. We're talking about 1.30. And I said, oh my gosh, what's going on with this guy? This guy really, something's wrong. And I even said to myself, he's screaming. And he's, he, F, he said, I said, he could be on PCP or something or, or a drug. He, he, this could be like a physical threat to me. I'm going anyway. So I go there and I knock on this time. I knock even longer the time and I'm knocking. I'm like, say to myself, if I can't sleep, what's the point? <laughs> I'm going to be here, you know? And so he opens the door. Finally, 3.30 in the morning, I think, or three in the morning, he opens the door again, casual eyes looking making it seem like his eyes sleep he's got his ear pods in his ear he said i said i say excuse me. i hear screaming are, are you screaming <laughs> i hear f-u-c-k i hear this my ear pods i've been on my xbox and then i said okay this guy's playing a game and he's being amplified me i said you're playing a game on your xbox assuming it he says no i'm watching a video <laughs> i said but did, did you hear that screaming Nah, I can say I had the ear pause in my ear. So now I'm thinking, okay, this guy is not being true. You will at least hear what I'm hearing if it's coming from you. But, you know, I can't say that. So as a knee-jerk reaction, I say, well, I apologize. You must think I'm absurd to come down here and knock on your door at 3.30 in the morning. I hear screaming. Are you sure you don't hear it? He's not. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting ready for sleep. Like to give me the message. I'm annoying him. And so at that point, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not too sure. Because he doesn't. When he opens the door, I'm like, he doesn't look like that. the guy who would be screaming, just crazy. We end it. He closes the door. I say, have a good night's sleep. Sorry, excuse me for disturbing. I go back to my room. I say, well, it's it's over now. It's 3.30. He said it wasn't him. And if it was him, I think he'll stop now. I lay down and I don't hear screaming, but I hear what's going on. He's on the phone and he's having a conversation as if it's like 6 p.m. in the evening. He's laughing He's talking. And so I put my ear to the rug carpet and I hear he came down to the door again. <laughs> he knocked on the door again. I wasn't going to open it. I let him knock for like so, so long. He does his third time. I'm going to get a court order. How about I get a court order? And he's laughing. He's joking. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got this type of. And so I thought that was the end of the story because, you know, I just went to sleep. What can I do? <laughs> I didn't hear him scream. He was just. I went to after eating my before eating my dinner, coming home this I come into my apartment. I say, hey, let me go home. Let me go up some get grab the microphone for the podcast. Eat some real quick dinner real quick. Come back out. Come to Sean. Come to the Sunrise podcast. (laughs) And the dream still has me itching, Sean. I I live on the fourth floor. He lives on the third. I say, you know, 
while I'm walking, taking the elevator up to the fourth floor. Let me just push number three. Now, I'm not going to get off, but just in case. <laughs> or maybe I'll get off and walk on the, across the hall to the, ele- the, the, the steps and walk up one left flight, just in case I bump in. The elevator opens at, at floor three. Guess who's waiting to get on the elevator? The neighbor. I'm so happy. <laughs> Hello. He gets on. I said, are you going down or up? I'm so confused now about where I'm even going. He said, I'm going to work, he says. He thinks I'm like asking other questions. No, I'm not saying, are you going up or down? I said, I'm going up. I mean, I'm going down. And the elevator is still going up because I initially pushed four. So I said, this is great. This is going to be a long ride. <laughs> I said, hey, man. <laughs> I didn't say, hey, man. I think I said something better than that. I said, so listen. How's your day going? I hope your day went well. So, okay. So after I uh, knocked on your door, I went to my apartment and I, you can, uh, so you, you continued the conversation on your phone. Now I know what it is. It, you continue the conversation on the phone. I heard you for two hours. I just want you to know. I just want you to know your voice is going straight through the ceiling, the floor, straight in my ear. And I not, cannot get to sleep. I just want you to know this. I cannot get to sleep. And I say, you know, I, I get it. I heard you say court, get a court order and all this. Stuff. I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand that. But I just want you to know your voice is going straight through my ear and I cannot sleep. I understand. Listen, I know in Montgomery County, the floors in these apartments, they're thin, I'm told. I get it. But I cannot sleep. And he responds, uh, well, you know, I'm a night owl and I get home late. And, and, and this and that. I said, yeah, I get it. I get it. Night. But within the context of four in the morning, a conversation. And, you know, I think that's the best I conveyed to him. But I felt good because the dream just had me so wrapped up to like get as much off your chest as possible. Almost as in the vein of, you know, the thing that what you said to end with redemptive suffering. You know, it's the, the heart. That needs to be felt. I really wanted him to fight. I cannot get this. I cannot really force you to do anything. But you're going to at least feel what I'm going through. I cannot get to sleep. I want you to know this. <laughs> now, you, you as a person, if you have some cooth, I want to see how you react to this information I'm giving. And that was it. You know, and I went up to my apartment. He went to work. We'll, we'll have to revisit and see if <laughs> it's useful. One of the things I, I when I... I uh, talk about or read about Gandhi, I was amazed by his, I gave some dates, 1893 to 1915, he's in South Africa, 22. He goes to India in 1915, Uh, India uh, becomes independent in 1947, so 30 years, and uh, August 15, 1947, India's independent, and Gandhi only lives for five more months, and so we can learn in this that uh, our sense of time and our desire for change sometimes <laughs> sometimes we need to garner some some patience. <laughs> and, and the the last image uh, before we close out that really uh, you, in in your sharing of your dream really like opened up a new uh, understanding of this kind of transformation that. I imagine, as he was a human being like we are, that when this transformation takes place, you know, uh, we t- we read about, we can tell the story, we can imagine, but in his lived experience, it's like he was living in this foreboding, ominous, uh, like uh, gray, like uh, beginning of Wizard of Oz, right, black and white, and that 
when this change takes place with him, it's like he starts living in technicolor. That because what I've I've also experienced is kind of like unwillingness to speak, and that it's like you make your own prison, and that he lived in this also. If you can imagine the embarrassment of being a trained lawyer, you went all the way away from home and you're standing before a judge. You've got your client who's paid you money. You've got another lawyer over there who's kind of uh, you're competing against, so to speak, for the case. And you are so entrapped in yourself that you can't even form words at that, in that moment. And that image is not a moment in time for Gandhi. That is, that's how he's living until something happens where he's he like uh, he's on fire and he becomes the uh, he can no longer remain silent. Uh, this is a really uh, as we were prepping for the show we we're talking about we have to ideally we have a, a teaser for the next and mm-hmm. maybe we just land on the words of this uh, you yourself can no longer remain silent so uh, I'm going to close out on my end. And any closing thoughts uh, from Kenny? Uh, one such fire transformation is a uh, spark. It's, it's spark. If you are hearing this, it means that we have handpicked you to hear our uh, uh, trial episode one here. And uh, we'll return with uh, the next week with uh, you yourself can no longer remain silent.